you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ruth one last time. Uh, what a wonderful book the book of Ruth has been. I've heard so many testimonies over the past several weeks of thankfulness for this book. Uh, thankfulness, uh, I've heard things like, wow, I didn't realize such a treasure there in the midst of the Old Testament. And I would encourage you, the whole Old Testament is a treasure. But Ruth is certainly a gem in the midst of that treasure. In a way, I'm sad to see Ruth finish this week, um, but trusting what God has planned next for us. Uh, today, what it, here's, here's my plan. I, I'm not going to read Ruth 4. We've kind of been in this rhythm where we kind of preach two sermons on each chapter, with the exception of Rusty in chapter 3, but um, we're going to, really what I want to do today is to summarize the entire book. Uh, I want to kind of draw some pull some strings together and connect a few dots for us. And I want to leave the book of Ruth pointing your mind and your heart in a particular direction. Uh, that, is, that is my hope today. So let's pray to that end. Father, may, may your word do what only your word can do in the hearts of your people. Father, point our wayward tending hearts our wayward-prone hearts in the right direction. Out of your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with talking through the, the trials, the setbacks, the challenges in the story of Ruth. The first one that we come across is there's a famine in the promised land. God is disciplining the Israelites for their disobedience, and if you need more of that context, remember you can read the book of Judges. There's famine in the promised land, the place that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. There's a famine. It's not flowing with milk and honey. There is no bread to eat. And Naomi and her husband experienced this discipline at God's hand in famine form. <clears throat> and so they leave God's promises and head to Moab. You have to understand in the Old Testament that there are, like, the physical things in the Old Testament represent spiritual things. Like, by and large, that is the pattern of the Old Testament. We get the New Testament, they kind of start talking directly about spiritual things, but in the Old Testament, there's lots of pictures that are being drawn for us and, and illustrated for us. That's why, one of the reasons why, practically, we should not overlook the Old Testament, because it helps give uh, beauty and illustration to that which we learn in the New Testament. And so here they, they leave not just the promised land, they leave God's promises to go to Moab to get sustenance and provision and such there, apart from God, uh, from the gods of Moab. That is the picture being drawn for us. And, and they're suffering, Naomi and family are suffering under their own sin and the consequences that this sin has brought about. Now remember, we know this later on, it talks about how Naomi says, I, I was full and I came back empty, right? She was full of what? Herself, her self-sufficiency. She has it figured out. 
How many conversations do we find ourselves in where we are speaking and talking and acting as though we have it figured out? Famine in the promised land. Second, setback challenges. Spiritual famine and physical disaster in Moab. In Moab, Naomi's husband dies, and her two sons die. And remember, in this kind of culture, this, this is a huge deal. I mean, it's a huge deal, period, right? To lose your family like this. But particularly in this culture, where this is Naomi's then means of, of survival in many ways, they die. And she's left with her two daughters-in-law. And when she returns from Moab, she says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And God has dealt bitterly with me. Here's her mindset. This is Naomi's mindset. Everyone else is the problem. It couldn't possibly be me. That's the issue. Clearly, this is God's doing to me, and the implication, what she's implying, is that I don't deserve this. I'm not the issue. God is the issue. I'm not the issue. The land is the issue. I'm not the issue. God, as I said, is the issue. Now remember, remember, Naomi's been a church member all of her life. All of her life. And here she is saying, I'm not the issue. God is the issue. What you really see going on here is Naomi's bitterness being projected onto God. So you see Naomi's emotionalism that is categorized, described as bitterness, and she's taking that and saying that that's what God has done to me. She's projecting that issue onto God. We do this all the time. We project our issues, our sin, our struggles onto other people. She thinks, like literally, she thinks she's being harmed by God. She think, thinks that God is dealing calamity upon her for, largely, no purpose, for nothing good for her. It is God intending to harm Naomi. That is her perspective, her mindset. And then, in verse 21, it says, I went away, chapter 1, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? This is an interesting language here. The Lord has testified against me. Testified. Think about this with me for a second. She doesn't understand God's testifying. What is testifying? It's God's language. It's God's speaking. God's proclamation. 
what, she's, what he's saying to her. And she doesn't understand what he's saying. We say, well, how do you know she doesn't understand it? Because she's saying that God is against me. That he's testifying against me. If she's a child of God, then that's not possible. That God has brought calamity upon me. As if for calamity's sake. That's not possible if she's a child of God. So she's fundamentally misunderstanding the language of God. What she doesn't understand is she doesn't understand the gospel that God works through the greatest of calamity to bring our hearts to salvation. How do you know that? Because of the cross. The calamity of the cross is the language that Naomi doesn't understand. That God is not testifying against her. He's testifying for her. He's not just bringing calamity upon her. He's using calamity to save her. But this feels like a foreign language to her. The problem with Naomi is she doesn't understand the God of the Bible. God has not been the one to make Naomi bitter. It's her own sinfulness that has made her bitter. It's the fruit of her sinfulness. So she has spiritual famine and physical disaster in Moab and comes back and says these things. Next in the story, we see Boaz as a temporary physical provider. Here we get to meet Boaz and we're thinking, great, hope is finally here. Hope is here. But it's in the midst of this chapter, chapter 2, that no solution is granted. No hope is fulfilled. And we're left asking the question, what is going to happen? Like we, we see the, the hope and then now it's like, uh, but, but what's going what's to happen to Naomi? What's going to happen to Ruth and Boaz? Another setback, another twist in the road. And then we have the foolishness of Naomi. Another twist and turn in the road. Naomi sends Ruth to do something incredibly foolish and risky. Naomi and her counsel could have ruined the whole thing. Now we don't give her too much credit because God's still sovereign over all of that. We'll see that in a bit. But at this moment, we're left thinking, what are you thinking, Naomi? I can tell you what Naomi's thinking. It's, it's the waywardness of Naomi's life, and she thinks that this is all about her, and thinks that she has to get what she thinks she needs. A twist, a turn. Naomi, what are you thinking? And then, kind of come around the next corner, and we have Boaz's faithfulness. 
But what happens with Boaz's faithfulness? There's another redeemer, he says, right? Boaz, no, stop it. Here we find out that Boaz might not be the solution, but Boaz, you're the one who loves her. And Boaz will not proceed until this other man is given his lawful opportunity. But Boaz, faithfulness to God's law might ruin the whole project. What are you thinking, Boaz? Just make it happen. You deserve it anyways, Boaz. Just make it happen. And then you see the willingness of the other Redeemer. Now Boaz goes to the gate and gathers the leaders and the other Redeemer tells him of his responsibility and he says, I will do it. I will redeem the land. But we're going, wait a second, no, 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 we don't want that, we want Boaz. And yet another setback, another twist and turn in God's providence. I want you to realize this, that at this point in the story, Boaz is faithful to God and the Redeemer, at least, the other Redeemer, at least on the outside, is faithfulness to God, is faithful to God as well. And yet it feels like a setback to another plan or another agenda item. It feels like, well, well wait a second. Are, aren't we taking some steps back? But what's happening? Faithfulness to God by Boaz, faithfulness to God by the other Redeemer. I will redeem the land. And we're going, whoa, 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 wait, that's a, what's happening here? This is crazy. This is not supposed to happen this way. We think it's a problem in the story. How often do we in our lives experience the faithfulness of others, the faithfulness of God, but it feels like a setback in our plans and our agenda and our dreams? I wonder how many of us are easily offended by the people in our lives that are simply living faithfully. That their faithfulness keeps rubbing up against our unfaithfulness. Boaz and the other Redeemer at this point are simply trusting and following God. But then next, the, the road turns again. The unwillingness of the other Redeemer, right? Boaz reminds the Redeemer that he has the responsibility of Ruth as well. And then he declines. Now on one side of this, you're going, okay, great, Boaz will win the day. And on the other hand, it's going, this other Redeemer is not really a Redeemer at all. That's the picture. And then the last major twist or turn in the road is the barrenness of Ruth. You say, wait a second, she had a kid. She did. But do you remember her time in Moab? Married? Ruth is barren. She was married for 10 years and yet without a child. It wasn't because she had just stopped taking the pill when be right before they left. She was in Moab and barren. 
The elders prayed, though, that she would be fruitful, as fruitful as Leah and Rachel, and yet she was barren. And of course, the rest of chapter 4 and such is fresh, hopefully, in your mind. Let me ask you this question. Why does the book begin and end with Naomi? We talked a little bit about this this past week, uh, so I'm not going to go to the same thought last week. But why does the book begin and end with Naomi? It began with Naomi's loss, but ends with God's grace in her gain. Death gives way to birth. It says at the end, a son born to Naomi. Why? 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 I mean, there's multiple reasons here, but I think one of the biggest reasons why the, the author takes us to a son born to Naomi is to show that what Naomi said about God in chapter 1 was not true. That Naomi was witnessing falsely against God. That God did not bring her back ultimately empty. Yes, empty of her pride, her self-sufficiency, etc. But not empty ultimately. He was emptying her of her garbage so that he could fill her with himself. She needed greater faith. She needed to walk in repentance for her wrong beliefs against God. So a son born to Naomi is to show us that what was said about God was a lie. Think about the garden picture, right? Adam, Eve, God didn't really say that. What's Satan, in, what's Satan entering into the equation? Lies about God. Misbelief concerning God. What happens here? God says, the things that Naomi have said about me are wrong. And God works in such a way to prove that all her complaints against him were untrue. Like, do you understand that some of us, many, all of us at some point or another, and many of us on a daily basis, are walking around throwing our complaints against God and against what God is doing around us? Two things. God will prove you wrong. There's two good things about that. One is because He will protect His glory. But two, when you and I are wrong about God, we should want to be proven wrong. Because that's what's good for us. It's to know God and know God rightly and truthfully. We don't want to be like Adam and Eve in the garden. We want to know who God is. We should want to be corrected when we are saying something wrong about God or not saying it the best that we can. God works to prove Naomi wrong. Aren't you glad? Because the, the proving Naomi wrong was the offspring that will lead to Jesus. Aren't you glad Naomi was proved wrong? I want you to see that, listen, 
Naomi, as a child of God, will make it to the end, ultimately, but not via a straight path. All of this is this recounting so far, Ruth, is to show us that the path is desperately crooked, full of evil, full of things even outside of Naomi's hands. The path is just twists and turns and ups and downs and I don't know what feeds into to our, I mean, we just want comfort, we want ease, we don't want stress, we want things to go our way. Some of it's American culture because we isolate ourselves from struggles and sufferings and, and so we just, we just want this coasting of a path to heaven and, and we want to get to glory like it's a, just the next step and this is what we do. And we want a formula, we, we want all these things. And, but the picture of Ruth here is that it is anything but a straight path to glory. To quote Piper, the point of the book is that the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they get there. But they get there. Listen, Naomi was in Moab for at least 10 years. Think about this. We can read this story in how long? What's it, 15 minutes, something like that? 20 minutes? I, I don't know. It depends on how fast you read. But the span of the story that we have recounted here is at least 10 or 11 plus years. And that doesn't include the sinfulness of Naomi leading up to the decision made in chapter 1 to leave. So I'm sure you have years of that. Here's what I want you to see is that we're talking 15, 16, probably 20 plus years of crooked twists and turns in Naomi's path. I want to read for you Romans 8, 18 through 30. If you have your Bibles, we will be flowing a bit from Romans 8 the rest of our time. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But as we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also what? glorified. God always works graciously in the midst of the sinning and suffering. Always for His people. Always. The sinning and the suffering. We're going to talk about both. Ruth was written to give us hope during God's dark providences. To give us hope during God's dark plans. To help us trust God and His grace when the clouds are so thick that we can't see what's in front of us. To help us, Ruth is written, to help us recount the facts that this God is the one who turned each and every setback into the journey forward toward glory. Every detail served God's advancing purposes toward glory. Ruth was written to help us see that. Let's talk about some of these examples. The first one was this. Ruth was a gift to Naomi. Ruth was a gift to Naomi. Naomi did not deserve Ruth. Naomi deserved to stay in Moab, die, and go to hell. That's what Naomi deserved. Ruth was God's graciousness to Naomi. Even, listen, even when Naomi was in the wilderness, like the prodigal, wandering away from God, even in the midst of the death of her family, listen, through most of the book, she, Naomi, had become like the idols she was worshiping. She had eyes but could not see and ears but could not hear. And yet, in the midst of this, God gave her Ruth. God gave her Ruth in Moab knowing she was going to respond like she did when she got back to Judah. And yet God gives her Ruth. When everything was caving in in Moab, God gave Naomi Ruth. God knew that Ruth would stay by her side. God knew that Ruth would meet Boaz. God knew that Ruth would give Naomi food. God knew that Ruth would give Naomi a grandson that would redeem her. God knew that Ruth would be the shining example of faithfulness for Naomi to watch from her place of bitterness. Let 
God doesn't have to give us a glimpse of his glory and faithfulness when we are in the land of bitterness. He doesn't have to give us a glimpse of his glory when we are in the land of name your fruit of unfaithfulness. But he gives Naomi Ruth to watch, to see, to feel, to touch to be graced by. How many of us realize that we spend much of our days like Naomi? Let me ask you this question. Who is your Ruth? Has God put a Ruth in your life? Doesn't have to be a woman. Someone that is God's grace incarnate. Who is your Ruth? Who continues to walk along your side even amidst your harmfulness? Listen, Naomi sends Ruth to fornicate. To use Ruth to get what she wanted. And in the end, Ruth says, would you help me raise my son? Who is your Ruth? Again, we probably have to realize that we are first like Naomi before we'll even remotely be able to see the Ruth standing next to us. I, I feel like I have, I didn't put this in my notes, but I think I have three or four Ruths in my life. My wife, the two elders next to me, and my brother, Pastor John. These are Ruths in my life full of Naomi's, meaning my actions like Naomi. Who is your Ruth? Ruth was a gift to Naomi. This was God working graciously in the midst of her sinning and her suffering. Next, the, the next example is the temporary physical protection of Boaz. Naomi knew that it was not by accident that Ruth met Boaz or happened to be gleaning in his field. She knew that this was from the hand of God. I mean, Naomi, again, she's not blind to everything. She's seen a few things here and there. But then here comes Boaz providing for the very food that they need, the sustenance to live. So you have this physical protection of Boaz for Ruth and Naomi. You see God's provision for them. And then you have the actual protection of Boaz himself. Think about the threshing floor, late at night, beautiful woman, by his feet. And yet he remains faithful to the Lord. You see God protecting his Redeemer in the midst. You see God graciously working for Naomi and Ruth by protecting Boaz from Naomi's terrible plan 
but not just protecting them, protecting you and I as well. God protecting, working through graciously in the twists and turns of the story. And then you have the opening of Ruth's womb. Right, the ultimate act of protection by God in the story, the ultimate act of graciousness in the story of Ruth is the opening of her womb. Without it, Jesus does not come. The women recognized that it was God who opened the womb of Naomi and it was God who gave this child to Naomi. Listen, this is a constant theme. I should... In a constant theme in the Old Testament is this idea of barrenness, and then God opens the room. You think about Rachel, think about Sarah. It happens here again with Ruth. It says literally in the text, the Lord gave her conception. The theme of miraculous conception doesn't start with Mary. Time after time, we see God work during the trials and setbacks of Naomi's life. Listen, the journey of repentance and faith is hard. Reading your Bible, understanding the gospel, these things are hard. But God is always graciously working in the midst of all of it. We just sometimes can't see it. We've said in this book so far that the walk of repentance and faith is never a straight line. We talk a lot about repentance and faith, and for good reason. It's a crucial part of our life. Matter of fact, it's a life or death daily matter that has been neglected in our culture's church for decades. Just speaking recently, I'm sure it goes longer than that. This is language that Naomi didn't understand. God's testifying against her was God's gracious call to her to walk back in repentance and faith. But let me ask this question. What is the walk of repentance? Let me ask a more specific question. The walk of repentance. Is that the end? Is that the goal? Is repentance and faith the goal? Is it just we believe in Jesus and so now we repent for the wrong things and it just sort of ends right there and then one day we're in heaven? I think even in our church it often ends right there. Repent and believe in the cross. Repent for bad things now. Right? Because we get it, right? The gospel we need to repent, not just on the day we were saved, but we need to continue repenting and walking in, in faith. And, and it just kind of stops there, and then one day we end up in heaven. But listen, there is so much more to the story than that. There is more to repentance. There is more to faith than that. They are not the end. They are not the goal. The walk of repentance and faith is again never a straight line, but by God's certain grace, we will get to the end, for the best is yet to come. There is something beyond repentance and faith. Repentance and faith isn't the end, it isn't the ultimate goal. Thinking about repentance here. Repentance for believing wrongly that leads to acting wrongly, right? Faith, growing and believing the unseen. 
Yes, these are core parts of the Christian walk, but it's not the end of the Christian walk. It's not the final goal. Do you understand that all of the repentance and faith will be done someday? Both will be done someday. You say, well, well, repentance will, because we won't sin anymore. And faith will be done someday. All the repentance, all the faith will be done someday. And if it is going to end someday, then it can't be the ultimate goal. What is faith? Faith is belief in the unseen, right? We will no longer need faith in the unseen. Why? Because the unseen will be seen. Because we shall see His face and we shall no longer sin because we have seen His face. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Let me read that in the terms we've just used. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be those who don't sin will be what well, we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. No need for repentance, because we shall what? Won't be living by faith anymore because we shall see him as he is. That is the goal. That is the goal. That is glory. That is God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's subsequent infinite blessing. Repentance is not the end goal, but it is a necessary part of the plan. Faith is not the end goal, but it is a necessary part of the plan. Being like Jesus, that is the end goal. When Paul says those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's he saying? Those whom he made right and paid for their sins in Jesus, those he made to look like Jesus. That will not end. You get that, right? That doesn't end. Looking like Jesus doesn't end. Being transformed from one degree of glory to the next doesn't end. That's the goal. That's the glory that Romans 8.30 speaks of. And what does Jesus look like? I mean, there's much we could say, right? At the very least, being like Jesus looks like humble, loving, and trusting dependence without wavering. He believed who the Father was and so lived in humble Dependence on the Father. For us, repentance is just one of the fruits of humble, loving, and trusting dependence. 
being so satisfied in God that we can do nothing but lovingly walk in faithfulness to Him is the goal. What's so magnificent about seeing His face? Because we will love His beauty. Because we will see His glory. Because His face will melt away our idolatries. Because His face will remind us of the scars that paid the price for our sins. Because His face will remind us that He loved us while we were still sinners and He died for us while we were still sinners. That will change us. So we don't repent because that's just what good Reformed Christians do. We repent because we believe there is something better to come. We repent because we believe there is a glory to come. Us being like Him. Us seeing Him. On the other side of my repentance, there is freedom and joy in Jesus. On the other side of my entire journey of repentance, there is eternal freedom and uninterrupted joy in Christ. If, if the best is yet to come, and that's why we walk in repentance of faith, why... Why are we so sure that what we're doing is right? Why do we walk into situations with arrogance as though I've got it figured out, as though I'm right? Why don't we walk in with humility saying, please help me see if I am unholy in any way. We don't do that because we don't believe the best is yet to come. We believe the best is yet to be saved and secured right now. I gotta protect it because I don't have anything best to look forward to. I gotta protect it now. We repent because we're turning from something we think is better for us to turn to God who we know is better for us. We repent because there's something better to come. Now let's not limit our plight to simply repentance, for we are not just sinners, we are also sufferers, suffering under the brokenness of sinfulness in this world, sinfulness of other people. Listen, faith to walk through the brokenness is a challenge, and it's never a straight line either. Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility. Because of sin, our bodies are broken, the government is broken, the air itself is broken, creation is groaning and awaiting its restoration. Seems like at each turn in the road, there is something we didn't expect just around the corner. Even as we have enjoyed God's grace in beginning renovation, there has been twists and turns, step forwards and step backwards that we never expected. And to walk by faith through these things has not been a straight line, but again, is faith through these trials the end goal? No, because eventually faith will be no more, the trials will be no more, the unseen will be no more, because the best is yet to come. 
And this is what the book of Ruth tells us. That God's unceasing kindness is for today. But if it's truly unceasing, then the best is yet to come. It can't be unceasing kindness if it starts and stops on this side of eternity. God is working through all things to show us how much we need Him and that we have Him. And if indeed we have Him, there is more to come. Through all the trials, the pain, the tears, things that we've sinned, things that have been sinned against us, the unexpected moments of life, none of it is purposeless. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, then every moment is God sovereignly working for the best that's yet to come. Everything. Listen, if you have a hard time seeing that in everything, then you should ask yourself the question, am I His? If you're a follower of Jesus, every moment is God sovereignly working for the best that's yet to come. His glory on display through your satisfaction in Him. Your dependence and humble joy in Him. All this life is meant to show us the glory of God, His magnificence, His brilliance, His tenderness, His justice, His mercy. All the brokenness in this world is to show us the glory of God as well. All the beauty in this world is to show us the glory of God as well. So that one day we would be so dissatisfied with the worship of anything else and so satisfied in the worship of Jesus that we will unwaveringly display His glory. The twists, the turns, the setbacks, the move forwards, the moving backwards, the ups, the downs. If there is something better yet to come, what are you spending God's resources chasing after now? What was it the thing yesterday that you had to protect, that you had to grab a hold of because you didn't believe that there was something better to come and that it's mine because of Jesus. I like John Piper says, we have a disease of trivial pursuits. We have a disease of trivial pursuits. So naturally, what trivialities do you pursue? Education, retirement, power, control, comfort, affirmation of others, protecting the image of others, family, television, sports, looking good in front of other people, 
polishing the bowl. These are not necessarily bad things, but compared to pursuing the glory of God, they are trivial. Your finances are trivial compared to pursuing the glory of God. Now, how do you pursue the glory of God, right? By honoring Him in all of these things. By putting Him first in all these things. By using all of these things to display His glory. That's what makes these things not trivial when they're used for that which is glorious. We are the one that trivialize these important things. We quote, We live in a perpetual and hopeless struggle to satisfy our longings on trifles. And so our souls shrivel. Some of us have been pursuing trifles for a long time. And our souls are shriveled. But Ruth tells us this. Turn your eyes towards something bigger than yourself. Turn your eyes. Matthew, turn your eyes to something bigger than yourself. The purpose of Ruth is to teach us that God's purposes for for the life of His people is to turn our gaze to something far greater than ourselves and our trivial pursuits. Everything we do in obedience to God, no matter how small, is significant. They all serve a purpose, no matter what it is. Your thought life in the car on the way home is not something without matter. It's something that's deeply purposeful. Let me quote, The deep satisfaction of the Christian life is that it is not given over to trifles, serving a widowed mother-in-law, gleaning in a field, falling in love, having a baby. For the Christian, these things are all connected to eternity. They are part of something so much bigger than they seem. Listen, let me help you understand. The walk of repentance is fundamentally a turning from the trivial to the glorious, from the trivial to the great, from the trivial to the gracious, from the trivial to the good. The best is yet to come. That is the unshakable truth about the life of the women and the men who follow Christ in the obedience of faith. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I, want you to, I just want you to see it. I want you to see it in print, in front of your face. Forgive my mispronunciations. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, 
and the Shon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Do you see this name? Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of, the David, of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Talk about a twist and a turn. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asa. And Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah was the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. And Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to uh, to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the father of uh, Abihud, and Abihud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mahan, and Mahan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. We are given a taste of this reality that the best is yet to come all the way back with Boaz and Ruth. From the offspring of Ruth and Boaz will come nothing less than God in the flesh. The offspring, the one who will go to a faraway country like Moab to rescue us, his bride, The one who will empty himself to take on our frame and our sin and be slain for it on the cross. The one who will, when emptied, will not be embittered toward God, but will trust the Father always. The one who will take God's ultimate calamity upon himself so that we will only know the Father's love. The one who will not only give us a field to glean from or care for our physical needs, but the one who will deal with our deepest need. Our greatest need is not the cross. It's not redemption. Our greatest need is to be in communion with God the Father, to be right with Him, to be loved by Him, and to walk with Him. The cross and redemption are what's necessary to deal with our greatest need. Jesus is the one who came to pay the price so that all that can be true. Jesus comes because the Father loved His chosen and even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, instead of consuming bread and drinking wine on the threshing floor, this Redeemer's body will be broken like bread and His blood poured out like wine. And when it is poured out, you and I will be covered under His blood. Under the wings of our Savior. Protection from what? Why the wings over us protecting 
us? What are we being protected from? God's holy and just wrath upon the unholy. That you and I once were now covered under the wings of his blood. We don't ultimately need shelter from storms. We need shelter from God's wrath. That's due to us for our sin. And just like Ruth trusted the safe wings of Boaz, we must trust in the safe wings of Jesus' blood. But listen, just as God was working all these events for Naomi's good and for Ruth's good, so too is God working all this for the good in this room of those who are His. All of it for those who love God. what Paul tells us. The question is, do, do you love God? Not is God convenient? Do you call upon God when you need Him? But do you recognize your ultimate need for Him and His ultimate provision of your reconciliation? Listen, if you're a child of God, (laughs) His wrath is for you no more because Jesus took it on the wings of His blood and it covers us like a blanket. And now, having satisfied His wrath, God has nothing, hear me, God has nothing but glory awaiting those who are covered in the blood of His Son. No wrath remains. None of it. To show us His glory, to make His glory known through us, Each day, from one degree of glory to the next, we shall see Jesus and we shall be like Him. Every turn in the road, both as sinners and sufferers, God is using to fashion us into His Son and to remind us this, that the best is yet to come. Repent because you believe the best is yet to come. Have faith that the best is yet to come. That glory is yet to come. Have faith in the midst of trials that are not your fault. Believing the best is yet to come. Persevere in the midst of others sinning against you. Believing that the best is yet to come. Walk wanting to remove anything that would dishonor God, believing that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Let's pray.
Father, as we partake communion today, may we be reminded that the best is yet to come. That the broken body, that the blood poured is what seals, what makes possible, and what reminds us and spurs us on in faithfulness each day. That the best is yet to come. For the body that was broken, the blood that was poured, that man, Jesus, was made afresh. He arose from the grave, his body restored, his life <laughs> breathing again. And Father, if you can do that through him and his blood now covers us, then no matter the twist, the turn, no matter the setback, no matter the ups and downs, the forward, the backward, no matter what it is, Father, you are purposing in all of those things to make us anew. to give us new life and to one day welcome us into your presence as your children. The one whom Jesus is the firstborn among. Father, may we look through everything seeing that the best is yet to come. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Ruth. Thank you for Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. Thank you for showing us these pictures and reminding us of Jesus. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.